In Genesis 37, Joseph is sold into slavery and sent to Egypt. In chapter 38, we expect to read of Joseph in Egypt. But instead, we read of Judah and Canaan. This is no uh, irrational diversion, but this is essential to the life of Joseph. Joseph's calling to preserve life is ultimately to preserve the life of Judah. This is because the messianic seed of the woman comes through Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then Judah, then Phares, and then ultimately to Jesus of Nazareth. Now in 39, the Holy Spirit returns to Joseph's life in Egypt. And in verses 1 to 20, we learn three things about Joseph's life in Egypt. We learn one, of Joseph's service. Two, of Joseph's temptation. And three, of Joseph's imprisonment. First of all, we learn of Joseph's service. Note the opening language. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt. In the Hebrew, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that whereas God promised Joseph through two dreams he will be exalted, this exaltation is not a straight rise to the top, but rather are going down before rising up. A humiliation before exaltation. Joseph was in the home of his beloved father, but then went down into the pit. Then he went down into Egypt. And by the end of this chapter, he goes down into prison. And so Joseph's life is first and foremost humiliation before exaltation. And his humiliation in this chapter is summarized by the word slavery. Slavery. The Ishmaelites who now own Joseph, they arrive in Egypt and they would have went to a marketplace and they would have had this man probably naked on display. And just like cattle, men would come up and test and examine. And if they liked a certain individual or plural people, they would purchase them to be slaves. Here we have a man named Potiphar. He's a very rich an important man. It says here he's an officer. Most likely, this is an officer in the royal court. He is the captain of the guard. He is the 
general, if you like, of Pharaoh's army. And he has a large house, a large estate and large fields. And he needs slaves to maintain them. And so he goes down to the market. He sees Joseph. He tests and examines him. And then he purchases Joseph. Now Joseph would have been the lowest status in Egypt. Not merely as a slave, but as a foreign slave. Egyptians who were slaves had certain rights and protections, but foreign slaves did not. Very much like in this nation, when there were slaves, white slaves had rights and privileges as being citizens of the United States of America, but black slaves were forbidden of being citizens of the United States of America. They were permitted to be citizens of a state, but they were forbidden by law to be citizens of the United States, which means the Constitution did not apply to them, which means men could do what they want when they wanted with the black slave. That was the status of Joseph. And so imagine his mindset now. I had dreams from God. I was going to be exalted. But now not only did my brothers try to kill me, then sell me, but I am a low slave in Potiphar's house. But then something wonderful arises in the chapter in verse 2. And the Lord was with Joseph. This is beautiful. Though he's in the valley of affliction, the Lord did not leave him. God did not abandon him. But his own Lord God is continually with him. His presence, his blessing, his goodness abides with Joseph. And this is because everything that's happening here is in the hand of God himself. Later on in chapter 45 verse 8, Joseph, whether he knew it at this point in time or whether he knew it later based upon reflection, Joseph says, so now, speaking of his brothers, it was not you that sent me here, but God. So why is he a slave? Why is he in Egypt? It is God's will. And God is with him. And when it says here the Lord God is with Joseph. This is not a one-off truth not to be applied. But this is a promise in the covenant of grace. For all of God's covenant people. In Genesis 26, 24, the Lord is with Isaac. In Genesis 28, 15, the Lord is with Jacob. In Joshua 6, 27, the Lord is with Joshua. In 1 Samuel 3, 19, the Lord is with Samuel. In 1 Samuel 18, 12, the Lord is with David. And it's the same in the new covenant. 
is the Lord Jesus Christ arises from the dead and he gives a great commission to his disciple and he ascends on high. What's the last verse of the gospel? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end. What's that promise of Hebrews 13? What's the context? Jews who believe in Jesus Christ and are greatly suffering for their faith in the Messiah. God's promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that in the old covenant and the new covenant, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will not fear. Why? Because he is with us. Because he is with us. So metaphorically speaking, if you're in Egypt, if you feel like you're at the very lowest rung of suffering and affliction, you apply Psalm 91.15. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. George Lawson in his commentary on the life of Joseph says, We are too ready to doubt of God's favour if we meet with unprosperous accidents or if we are not speedily delivered from afflictions. As if outward prosperity were a sign of God's favour and adversity a sure sign of his hatred. The Lord was with Joseph and could easily have restored him at once to his father's bosom. Yet, yet he did it not, but left him many years in a state of slavery. Cease then to judge of God's ways by man's ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's ways are higher than man's ways. He shows his love and manages his affairs according to his own infinite wisdom and not according to the plans which our weak understandings could prescribe. So as the Lord is with Joseph, the Lord will be with you and with me. But the Lord is with Joseph in a particular way. To prosper him. Verse 2 again. The Lord was with Joseph and he was a prosperous man. Prosperous means to abound, to flourish, to accomplish. And God's people should always prosper. Psalm 1 verse 3. Uh, verse, four, verse 4. The blessed man is like a tree planted by a river, which in his season yields his fruit and leaf fadeth never. And then it says, he prospers. Now this is not a promise that will always prosper outwardly in circumstances. There's no such promise in the Bible. But there is a promise that inwardly, Third John, the soul is to prosper. 
And if there is prosperity for us, it comes from the hand of God himself. Therefore, we are to be humble, dependent on him and thankful. But here, the Lord is with Joseph in order to prosper him in three ways. First of all, he prospers his character. Verse 2, he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. So, Joseph, in God's providence, is not a slave working in the field, but a slave working in Potiphar's house. And in Potiphar's house, as you read the whole description, Joseph stands out. He's hardworking. He's diligent. He's prudent. He is trustworthy. And so the character of Joseph stands out as the Lord prospers his soul. And this does not go unnoticed. In verse 3, Joseph prospers before his master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Potiphar's eyes are on Joseph. There's something different about this young man. His speech, his response to my commands, the way he carries out the tasks. Something's different here. He discovers somehow that Joseph is a Hebrew and he worships the Lord Jehovah, the one true God. And as he observes Joseph and his house, he summarizes, there's a man of God. The Lord is with Joseph. And everything that I give him prospers. All that he did to prosper in his hand. If I tell him to oversee the cooks, the cleaning, the fields, the service, whatever it is, everything he touched turns into gold. And I trust this man. In verse 4, Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had he put into his hand. He makes him the supervisor over all the slaves. He makes Joseph his right hand man, his personal assistant. And then thirdly, the whole work of the entire estate prospers. Verse 5. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. As the overseer of all the estate, everything Joseph does prospers. 
This is a fulfilling of God's promise to Abraham. I will bless you. And through you, I will bless all nations. And so the Lord is with Joseph, blessing him, prospering him, even the whole house and field. What can we learn about this? First of all, we learn about the greater Joseph, Jesus Christ. Whereas Joseph's humbling to be a slave was involuntary. The Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself to be a slave out of his own will. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal of God, but made himself of no reputation and took the form of a slave. Think about that. He is God, the creator, the sole object of all service, the sole object of all worship, adoration, glory, and obedience. And what did the Son of God do? He humbled himself. No coerced, not forced, no had to, willingly, he became a slave. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He became a poor slave for our sakes. And what a slave he was. Galatians chapter 4 says that he was made under the law. Under the law. Which means he was duty bound before God his master to obey every jot and every tittle of his master's will. He must sinlessly, perfectly obey every command of the law. And he did so. He did so for our sakes. And he prospers in everything he does. That's the promise of Isaiah 53 verse 10. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Acts 10.38 God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good for God was with him. The Lord God was with the Son Jesus Christ and therefore he went about doing good. Healing, exercising, teaching, showing mercy, and in his ministry, and his obedience, and his service, everything just prospers. And it says that Joseph was made the overseer, but only of an estate. In John chapter 3, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. In John chapter 5 it says, the Father has given the Son all judgment. 
In Ephesians chapter 1, it says God has put all things in subjection to the Son. So that he oversees, he's the supervisor of the entire universe. Upholding all things by the word of his power. And it's all for blessing. Because through him, all the nations are blessed. Through his blood, out of every tribe, kindred, tongue, family, clan, people group. Our sinners saved and receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So that through faith in Jesus Christ, you and I are blessed for all eternity. So as the Lord is with Joseph, let us remember the greater Joseph, the Lord and Saviour of our body and soul. But we learn secondly about the Christian witness. The Lord is with Joseph. Joseph works hard. He's prosperous. Everyone notices it and it becomes a blessing to all around him. The same for Christians today. The Lord God's with us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. Our souls are to prosper in grace. And we are to be salt and light so that everyone around us is preserved and restrained by the gospel. And we're to be a city on a hill so that all will see the light and give glory to the Father. Philippians chapter 2, 14. Do all things without murmuring and disputing that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. Without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. That's us. The Christian in the workplace or in the community is to shine forth as a light. We're not like the world complaining and disputing. We're not lazy and untrustworthy. But we're diligent and hardworking and faithful and prudent and honest and full of integrity. And the world knows it's not because of us, but we declare it with our lips. It's because of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of his grace. It's because of the spirit of God within us. And so through us, we should be blessing everyone else. If there's a converted man or woman in a family, in a family that's unconverted, the family should prosper. In a business, in the workplace, because of the Christian worker, people around them should be prospering because of our work. And when the church is truly serving the Lord, neighbourhoods and communities and nations themselves ought to be blessed. And so Joseph is an example for us that if we're faithful witnesses living out the gospel faithfully, we should be shining lights to all who are around us. But this leads secondly to Joseph's temptation. In verse 7, 
to verse 12, we have Joseph's temptation. I want to ask three questions of this passage. One, how is Joseph tempted? Two, what is his response to the temptation? And three, why did he respond this way to temptation? So how is Joseph tempted? It's in the realm of adultery. Sexual immorality. In verse 6, there's a statement that begins a new section. It says, He was a goodly person and well favoured. Literally, he was beautiful and handsome. These are the same words to describe his mother, Rachel, in Genesis 29, 17. They're translated here, Rachel was beautiful and well favoured. So beautiful in appearance, handsome in appearance, with a, an attractive body. That's the idea of the Hebrew there. There's nothing wrong with that at all. So Joseph gets the good looks of his mother. And in the house of Potiphar, it's not only Potiphar whose eyes are upon this young man, but Potiphar's wife has her eyes on the young man. Verse 7. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, lie with me. Now Joseph is a slave in Potiphar's house for 10 years. We know this because he was exalted to Pharaoh at 30. And he was in prison for three years. And so from 17 to 27, he was in Potiphar's house. So he comes in as a teenager. And he grows and matures. And Potiphar's wife literally raised and lifted her eyes upon him. At first, she didn't even look at him this way. But over time... See him come in and out serving, she begins to lift her eyes and be attracted to this young man. And the desires of the heart turn to lust. The lust turns to word and deed. And she propositions him to lie with her. And she's not taking no for an answer. Because later on in verse 10, it says she spake to Joseph day by day. Just little chats, just little conversations, maybe flatteries, maybe innuendos. Come be with me, come sit with me, come have coffee with me. Always seeking to allure and entice him. 
This is a warning for every Christian, man and woman. When everything is going well, when we are outwardly prospering, that's when we are most vulnerable to temptation. This is because that's when we're least watchful, we're most at ease, we're least on guard. Everything was going well in Joseph's life and then out of the blue, come lie with me. And often that's how the devil works with us. He piles prosperity on us. He puts a guard around us. So that our lives can grow without sufferings and afflictions and struggles and pains. So we become more comfortable, more at ease, less dependent on God. And then he jumps out on you. And one of the main ways he's coming for us is lust and sexual temptation. This is one of the weapons in his arsenal. This is one of the arrows in his quiver. And he knows this kind of sin destroys. It destroys the individual. It destroys marriages. It destroys relationship between parent and child. It destroys family homes. It destroys churches. One fall can split an entire congregation. He knows if he can get an individual to fall in this sin, the reputation of Jesus Christ is destroyed in everyone who knows or related to these individuals. And if any of us think of this is not a sin we can fall into, you're already in the devil's trap. 1 Corinthians 10. Wherefore let him that thinketh He standeth, take heed lest he fall. Think of Peter. I'm not like other men. They may deny you, Lord, but not me. I'm even prepared to die for you. Moments later, he's denying three times. So if you or I think there's no way I would ever be tempted by Sexual immorality, you're already in Satan's grip. In one way or another, we are all enticed or able to be tempted in this sin. What is Joseph's response? What is Joseph's response? When you find Joseph's response, let us follow it. Because it's the perfect way to resist sexual temptation. First of all, he refuses. Verse 8. But he refused. Immediate response. No lingering No thinking, no considering. Immediately, no. Proverbs 
Verse 625 says, speaking of adultery and someone enticing, lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? When we are enticed to this sin and we allow it to burn in the heart, it's only a matter of time before it comes out. So you don't say yes, but you don't say no. You daydream, you imagine, you think about it. That's the devil already in you. You're driving and there's a billboard. Get your mind off it. Refuse. Think about something good and pure. You're about the place, shopping, going to a park, walking somewhere, and there's enticement. Refuse immediately. No daydreaming, no imagination, no thinking. Refuse. Or if there ever is someone propositioning, you don't think, you don't daydream, you don't consider, you immediately refuse. Second Corinthians 10.5 Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's our MO. This is our weapon. This is how we defeat. We refuse because every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This does not mean you'll never ever have thoughts of this sin. But it means immediately as you have thoughts of this sin, you train yourself to hold that thought, throw it out, do not linger, go to your Bible, get the scripture in your mind, pray to God and get it away from you. And that will help you exponentially in most resisting of the sin. Second response is persistence. In verse uh, 10, Potiphar's wife comes day by day. She's speaking. And it says, he hearkened not unto her. It's one thing to resist sin once, twice or thrice. It's another thing to do it continually, daily. That's what we're called to. That's what we're called to. Every day, purity. Every day, chasteness. Every day doing what is right. Every day. And he's even practical. It says here to lie by her or to be with her. I'm not even going to be with her one on one. I'm not even going to put myself into a situation which allows me to be enticed. Very good practice from Joseph here. People in America uh, love to mock Mike Pence because when he was uh, running to be the vice president, it was leaked like it was a bad thing that he follows Billy Graham's rule that he will avoid all appearance of evil and he will never meet with a woman one on one. And the world mocked him. And the world wonders why there's so much adultery and immorality. 
But Mike Pence was wise, Billy Graham is wise, and Joseph is wise. He resisted day by day by not even putting himself into the situation. What's the situation you're in? Is it Facebook? Is it websites? Resist day by day by not even putting yourself into that situation. Maybe for some of us, we need to completely get rid of the internet. Maybe for some of us, we need a good program like Covenant Eyes. Maybe for some of us, we can never go to certain places at certain times. Maybe for some of us, we need to completely disconnect ourselves from a friendship or a circle of friends. In order to stay pure. Whatever it is. Day by day. We persistently resist. In a practical manner. But then we have the third response. He flees. Verse 12. As she grabs his clothing. And it comes off. He flees from her presence. This is a very wise move. Proverbs 5 verse 8. Remove thy way far from her. Come not nigh the door of her house. 1 Corinthians six eighteen. Flee fornication. 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee youthful lusts. There are some temptations in the Bible. That it just needs self-control. Temperance. Moderation, alcohol, food, moderation, temperance, self-control. These are how you defeat these sins. But there are other sins you just simply look the other way and run. This is because sins like this are so powerful. The most rational, self-controlled, pious, faithful man or woman brought into the enticement of this sin, inward emotions begin to arise. Physical appetites are acting. Situations and circumstances present themselves. Reason goes away. Self-restraint disappears. Inhibition evaporates. And you do something you would never, ever imagine yourself doing. What's the right response? Flee. So you don't get into that, that, that particular enticement in the first place. Young men and women. You're growing. Your body's changing. You have good natural desires that God has placed in you. Desire to love, a desire for a spouse, a desire to have good, beautiful relations in the marital home. Good, beautiful things. 
But within the goodness, you have the corruption of your flesh. You have the world and you have the devil. And you need to refuse, resist and flee. When you find yourself in situations, you flee. Have a counsel at home. Be open and honest with mother and father. They were teenagers too. They know what it's like. And you can trust your godly mother and your godly father to give you godly biblical sound advice. But whenever you are in this trap, don't look, don't think, don't imagine, flee. And if we keep this by the grace of God, we will be free from this sin. But why? Why did Joseph respond this way? Well, here Joseph represents keeping the law. How do we keep the law? Jesus Christ says it's summarised, love neighbour and love God. See how he loves his neighbour. Where it says why he will not do this thing in verses 8 to 9. My master watcheth or knows not what is with me in the house. He has committed all things he hasn't. My master trusts me. He trusts me to be in his house. He trusts me to serve. He trusts me even to be in the house with his own wife. I will not sin against my neighbour. I will not sin against my master's trust. And then he says, because thou art his wife. What God has put together in union, let no man tear asunder with immorality. Hebrews 13 says that the marriage bed is to be undefiled and it's defiled if he does this thing. I'll destroy you and your husband and your marriage and this home and the children if there's any and the friends and the family and the community surrounding around this. I will not do this out of love for my neighbour. But then we have the great response, do we not? I will not do this wickedness and sin against God. He says, I'm not going to have an affair. I'm not going to have a fling. This is adultery. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to dress it up. I'm going to say it as it, it is adultery. And it is wicked. The world doesn't think like this. And I hope none of us have been desensitized. This is absolutely wicked. It's a breach of the seventh commandment. And how was adultery punished in the Old Testament law? Death. Death penalty. And so I will not commit this sin. These should be our motives too. Because we love our neighbour. We love brothers and sisters in Christ. We love people in our surroundings. We do not desire to do harm to them. 
We don't want to hurt them. We want to help them. And therefore, out of love, we will not commit these sins. And there's no such thing as a secret adultery. It's all before the eyes of an all-seeing God. And he hates it and he detests it. And if we have a filial fear of God, we will fear him and we will not fall into this trap. Why am I being so strong about this? Because it happens in the church. It happens in the church. Just three weeks ago, it came out that one of the most famous Presbyterian churches in the United States of America, their head pastor had resigned because he fell into adultery with one of the deaconesses. It's been going on for over a decade. Why am I being so strong here? Because it happens in the pews also. And therefore, since these sins are happening, we must be strongly preaching the word of God. Flee sexual immorality. But in this, do we not see Christ as well? In Hebrews chapter in Hebrews chapter 2.18, he himself has suffered being tempted. Christ's entire life was subject to temptation because he was the second Adam who must perfectly resist temptation in order to save us body and soul. And the devil was after him. All his power all his wiles, all his devices, all his army was against the Lord and Saviour to tempt him in so many ways. Think of the wilderness. Think of going after the human appetites of Christ. You're hungry, you're thirsty, you've had nothing to eat, turn the stone into bread. What did Christ say? No. And he used the word of God. If you're the son of God, why would you suffer on a cross? Why would you be forsaken of the father to be the king of the world? Simply bow down to me. No, he refuses, he resists, he shows the word of God. Do you really have faith in God? Prove it, jump off this wall. He refuses, he quotes the word of God. And the devil flees. And because of Christ resisting temptation perfectly and sinlessly, we have a mediator who cleanses us from sin, even the sin of adultery, even the sins of lust and sexual immorality. While unrepentant committing these sins, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. First Corinthians chapter 6. But such were some of you, because you're justified and sanctified. Christ's blood is so great, so powerful, that if we are committing the sins of lust and adultery and fornication, Christ can give full forgiveness and sanctification and make you holy 
and make you chaste and make you pure and make you like himself. So that we desire that which is good and beautiful and natural and given in marriage. We've gone beyond the time to go to our third point. We'll just leave it here then. We look to Christ. So that as he and Joseph resisted temptation, we likewise resist temptation. And we know that we have a body and soul which do not belong to us, but Christ has purchased us with his blood. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 6 Glorify your body and soul which are his. And so how do we use the soul? How do we use the body? We glorify God in purity. As teenagers, as single men and women, as married men and women. And we will shine as lights in the world. The world with a high divorce rate. With marriages that are splitting apart. With relationships that are null and void after a few years. Look at the Christian. Look at the godly man. Look at the godly woman. Look at their faithfulness. Look at the beauty of their relationship. Because the Lord is with them. And they are with Joseph. Let us pray. Father in heaven. We are thankful for the wonderful truth the Lord is with Joseph. And we're grateful this is a covenant truth for all covenant people. That Christ is with us. Help us daily to resist all sin. Help us not to fall into the trap of sin. But help us. Help the Lord to be delivered from sin. And we pray especially for the sin that's been brought up from this passage. Lord, put a hedge around all of us, our congregation, our young, our old, our singles, our marriages. Help us to desire that which is beautiful and good and lovely and virtuous. And may thy grace help us to be salt and light, a city on a hill. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's conclude by singing Psalm 91 again. Psalm 91, 13 to 16. The tune is Petersham, tune number 154. Psalm 91, 13 to 16. Upon the adder thou shalt tread, and on the line strong... Thy feet on dragons trample shall, and on the lions young, Satan will destroy Satan. Uh, sorry, God in Jesus Christ will destroy Satan so that his power can be defeated in God's people. Because in me he has set his love, I'll save and set him free. Because my great name he hath known, I will set on high. He'll call on me, I'll answer him, I will be with him still in trouble. To deliver him and honour him, I will. God's with us and he'll deliver us from our temptations. Let us stand and sing praise to God. Psalm 91, 13 to 16.